0: collective power we are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself each month we focus on one system and each episode we focus on one person's experience and their angle at the end of each month we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. to another episode of Collective Power. I'm really thrilled today to have a phenomenal panel of people who have been thinking really, really deeply about the economic system for decades, actually. Good morning to all the guests that we had this month. So David Kaplan, Eric Ramos, um, Eric, I don't remember, oh, Murillo. Um, Murillo. Murillo, there you go. Uh, Matt Burkhold, Wayne Armistead, and Dick Oberoi. Thank you for coming. So the conversation we're having today is the relationship between inequality and the economic system. And before we dive in, I'm gonna ask you to introduce yourselves like very briefly and then just start up with an opening statement about how you see the relationship between equality and the economy over to you all
1: i'm Gagan, and i have about 22 decades plus of working in marketing and sales and i specialize in getting people to buy more And uh, for me, I think the big question was inequality. And like I said, for me, inequality is part of economics. If you take out the inequality, economics will cease to exist. However, it is the kind of inequality uh, which is disturbing or which we want to correct. It's not the inequality in itself. And that's the cornerstone of the thinking here.
2: Uh, I'll go next. I'm David Kaplan. I am a sole proprietor, sole practitioner, uh, tax accountant for almost 30 years. And I've also done some work in government uh, or with government in tax reform and studying the economy of the world. I will agree and disagree with Guggen's statement that inequality is important to have I think the degree of inequality is what we're talking about. You know, there's a Gini coefficient out there that is wildly skewed in some economies and not in others. And I think while I understand that inequality is necessary, you have to have the workers and the bosses and they have to be compensated properly. But there's a range where you've got a multiple of earnings from the top to the bottom that has multiplied dramatically over the last 20 years or so. So I think it's the range of it that that is important here.
3: Hi, my name is Eric Ramos and I, I worked for the Central Bank of Mexico for many years. I'm an economist. I've also worked for different multinational international organizations, basically in the development space in Washington DC and in Paris. And uh, the way I see the relationship between economics and, and equality is, is one that is deteriorating. I think there have been competing uh, economic systems, and I think um, none of them are perfect. The one, the path that we're on right now is one that is important to, to distinguish what, what is the situation where we are and what is a trend and what type of trend we're willing to live with. So for me, even though we have seen inequality and we have tried to tackle, try to tackle it, but it's it not working very well. So for me, there's this relationship is something that we have to do something about, and that's the biggest challenges of our generation.
4: sped my first career was in education, and as an administrator in education for almost twenty years, I then got into investment business as a stockbroker and. A Portfolio consultant, and uh, I thought that uh, my first few years in the business were very interesting and uh, where uh, things were doing quite well as far as the financial system was concerned. But it has changed so much in the past, uh, well, really, in the past 40 to 50 years that we don't recognize what is happening or what has taken place. And uh, I've written a book called Capitalism Perverted, where I've tried to trace the changes that have occurred in the financial system and how it has led to gross inequality of income and wealth. I realized that there has to be inequality because uh, people have, a, we, we, we all know about the normal curve. But what's happened now is we've gone back to the middle of the 19th century to describe how much inequality exists at
5: the present time. Thank you. My name is Matt Burkle. I have a PhD in historical sociology where I specialized in the study of the historical development of capitalism on a world scale. That work, rather than going into the academy due to moral reasons, to my moral commitments to humanity, led me away from the academy and toward working with everyday human beings on the potential for us at the community level to work with each other to create sustainable and dignity-affirming local economies, institutions, and cultural practices. And as far as inequality being necessary, I'm firm of the belief that capitalism is the cause of inequality and that there is no such thing as as economic parity under capitalism, and I think that any system that requires inequality to drive itself forward and to create economic growth is a profoundly immoral system that is incapable of caring for human beings.
2: Rita, can I follow up on that? Go for it. Matt, I just, I just want to ask you, uh, and I don't necessarily disagree with what you said. Again, there are degrees, and you are correct that capitalism does require inequality, which may not be the greatest thing. However, socialism also requires some sort of inequality. The only ism, I think, that doesn't is communism. So I'm sure you're not on that end. I think there is a middle ground, but I think even the middle ground requires inequality, maybe just not as much as what we have. And maybe the focus is more on who are you helping and not what is required.
0: So, David, I want to push back on you for a second there. Mm -hmm. So, because I, Matt, of course, you'll have a chance to answer in a second, but I want to push back on you for a second. So, Your qualification was or communism, but I'm sure you're not on that end. So Mm -hmm. tell me about that. Tell me about the I'm sure you're not on that end. Like, what does that mean? And what does that mean to you that you felt the need to qualify it?
2: The S word in our country of socialism is not looked at in its proper perspective. As you can see from the right, that they look at socialism as communism, it's equal. Socialism is not communism, communism has a connotation of Russia and uh, authoritarianism, etc., which is why I said what I said. Uh, now, does it have to be that way? No, I think I'm not a, a student of Marx, but I believe that. Marx's idea was that everybody could be equal and it could be all fine but that is more a utopia than the reality of communism and that's why I said
0: so you qualified it because in your mind like communism equals authoritarian regime
2: correct yes
0: or a dictatorship okay got it I think a lot of people in the U.S. think that and so like i think that's why i, I wanted to highlight it
3: mm-hmm. so I, I wanted to mention something so i think it's important to to kind of like give um or at least have a common understanding of a, a definition and understand what we mean by equality uh, for example i don't know if you've seen the, a, an image that i think is three little guys looking at a baseball match i think have you seen it one, one says equality and the other one says equity Let me actually take a picture. I don't know if if I show it to you guys here and if you guys can see it. Perfect. We
0: can see it. Got it. Got it. Yes.
3: people looking at a net, right? And then one saying, you know, there are like three different sizes. One is very tall. is looking over a fence. All of them have a fence in front of them. Tallest one, of course, can see. The shortest one is a kid, cannot see. And the one in the middle kind of needs some support as well. Basically, only the adult can see. So, it, it says that equality is basically that you give everyone like a stool uh, is the same size. And if you give a stool to each one of them, again, the, the adult is kind of like the, the only one that can see very well. The one in the middle can barely see, and the kid cannot see. But if you give the other stools, and that's equality, everyone has one stool. It doesn't really help the tall person, he doesn't need it. The one in the middle probably doesn't uh, needs only one. And then the the little kid needs two. So basically, and that's called equity. So I think that it's important to distinguish that. Um, I mean, at least when I mention equality, it's not necessarily that people have to have exactly the same thing. It is more that you have to have the same opportunities because you may not want to have it, for example, if David likes to play guitar and I don't like it, I don't see why I should have a guitar just because, you know, we have to be equal. We both have to have guitars, right? I mean, this is a simple example. So in an economy where we think that everyone has to have the same things, we're ignoring also like individual preferences, individual tastes and and, and desires. And I think is that what we commonly associate as communism, that, you know, like you have to have the same thing, not necessarily. What I think is that we're going too far is when we talk about opportunities, equality of opportunities. If I don't have the opportunity to study and become whoever I want to become, that is actually a problem. That's where the opportunities should be the same, the the final allocation, not necessarily. Because I'm thinking right now, for example, right now in the COVID world, where we have a situation where we need to produce a vaccine that works for everyone. So at some point, someone said, you know, do you think there's going to be a vaccine? Do you think there's going to be a solution? I remember this was uh, early March this year. And I said, you know, it's not that I don't trust uh, or distrust science, I don't think it's that. I just think that a lot of really smart people and companies have the incentive to create this solution because the market is huge. If you said to this guy, sorry, you won't be able to profit from this great discovery and from like working nonstop for like nine months because we're gonna distribute, let's say the, the earnings equally among everyone, even if they didn't participate the incentive to overcome this problem wouldn't be as much. So I think there has to be equality of opportunity and not necessarily at the final result or the endowment. But it's important that that also we make sure that we don't go too far off, right? Because at some point, obviously, this equality of opportunity is really skewed by, by what people previous to us did, right? So if I happen to be born in a wealthy family, My opportunities are not going to be the same as or in a poor family as someone who in a wealthier family. So I think that's the part where we have to see. And and I think that's what we're starting to see. Like um, there is no equality of opportunity, and that's the one that worries me the most.
0: So I want to give uh, Matt a chance to respond to what David was saying. And at some point in this process, I'd like to hear some definitions of socialism and communism, because I think they're so misused in common language it would be helpful to actually come from an actual historical de- definition,
5: so. Thank you, Rita. And thank you, David, for a comment that forces me to clarify what I'm going to hear as good-natured assumptions about the nature of what I said. I don't consider myself a socialist nor a communist, nor a capitalist. Obviously, I live in a capitalist economic system and participate in it. I'm certainly not an advocate of it. And I want to be real plain and transparent about this. My understanding is that capitalism emerges over about a 200-year process between 1492 and 1692 or 1700. And then in in around 1815, we we enter into an industrial capitalist system that has kind of created the world that we know is normal. Um, and that's been around since you know the early 19th century. Socialism then emerges, you know, really with the Paris Commune, and theoretically, this socialism, as theorized by Marx and several others, is a period in which it's a it emerges in response to you know what some political economists saw as the misery produced. By poor people under capitalism. And socialism was a period in which through either through electoral means or outright revolt, the working classes might take control of the productive process and, and produce in the interests of humanity rather than in the interests of profit and capital accumulation. At which point the material conditions might exist for communism to emerge and the state can wither away and so on and so forth. At its core, all three of those frameworks or doctrines, whatever kind of language you want to use, it's not important to me to describe what those are. I think that one of the things that they all have in common, which is why I don't consider myself any of them, is that their basic understanding of economics is rooted in a false belief that nature, is an external cost, that somehow the economy is separate from nature, and that human beings don't exist in relationship to nature, but are entitled to use it for our own material satisfactions and desires quite frankly, because human life is more valued than other forms of life. And without getting into a a debate about that, I think that the climate crisis has brought us to the point where if we are decent and reasonable human beings, we have to question the economic idea that human beings, that nature can be externalized, that nature is an external cause. And if we are willing to face that squarely and say that we can no longer afford to think about nature as an external cost, it means that some of our very fundamental ideas about economics have to be completely rethought. And so I think that it provides us with the opportunity to think about and develop a relational framework of economics, which might, as Eric alluded to, help us imagine possibilities where human beings are motivated by things other than just economic interests and create vastly different ways of thinking about relating to each other and meeting our material needs in harmony with each other and with the planet. And so I think that we are literally in a kind of transitional phase as a species that we haven't been faced with since around the 15th century and before that the collapse of the roman empire like we're at a moment of profound historical civilizational transition that just comes along every handful of hundreds of years and so in relationship to that i think that we are living through a moment where because we're forced to human beings will come up with vastly different economic doctrines than those we've known over the last several hundred years. And therefore, we'll develop alternative frameworks to capitalism, socialism, and communism that have dictated our thinking over the last two to 600 years.
0: My question is, what is your vision mm. of what can and should shift mm. in the way we look at the economy for the purpose of humanity? We've had this conversation a little bit individually. I'd like us to have it now together.
4: I'd like to bring up some shibboleths that are absolutely untrue in the capitalistic ideology. There was a Federal Reserve chairman a few years ago, Alan Greenspan, who believed that the market could determine what should happen in the economy. The market would do it. He believed in something called the efficient market hypothesis, which basically says that if you just leave it up to the market, everything will work out fine so that there should be as little government regulation and you can have it. Well, when he left, he, Alan Greenspan left the Federal Reserve, he admitted that he was wrong. He admitted that the market, the market failed the system and that's why we had a breakdown in the economy. And uh, so I think what we have to do is we have to start making sure that people understand that the ideas that are put forward as to what capitalism is actually are not true in many cases. And what has taken place in the last few years has been to reduce the amount of regulation that there is in the economy by governments. And by reducing the regulations, it's created all kinds of distortions because the market system, while it works for goods and services, does not work in the financial area. So these are things I think that are important.
0: So what would an economic system that serves humanity look like?
4: I think that if you took a look at a fellow by the name of Hyman Minsky, came to some of his ideas and what he proposed he would have an idea of what it would look like and basically he would say that governments have to take a larger portion of uh, regulatory activity in the economy that's one of the things that he corporations are much too powerful at the present time they're distorting things small businesses can't operate against corporations corporations If you look at the last two breakdowns in the economy, 2000 and 2008, the first one was the dot-com crisis, and Greenspan threw enormous amounts of money at the system to help corporations recover from that. He did the same thing in 2008-09. All over the world, It's still happening. Money is being thrown at the system in order to preserve corporations. And if if capitalism really worked, the banks would have been allowed to go down. And that would have hurt shareholders. It would have created some distress in the economy. But we're having the same distress now. But what would have happened is that you'd still have everything being intact. All of the buildings would be there. Everybody knows the infrastructure. Everything would be fine, except that the excesses that occurred would be taken out of the system. And capitalism would have worked. So what would capitalism look like? Well, it would look a great deal different than it does now because corporations would not be one
1: dictating policy. So I think
3: that what we have to come up with is also I have more practical view of this. I wish my view was even more practical. For example, I, I just just from response a little bit to what Wayne was, I agree fundamentally with the premises of what he was saying. It's just that I think that sometimes it's very challenging. For example, I was in, in the operations department uh, working at the Central Bank of Mexico when we had the 2008 financial crisis. The problem why Mexico went into a crisis, it was a little bit different than that of the U.S. It was that someone decided to do options on on exchange rates, which were unfunded. Basically, said you know if the exchange rate goes beyond certain limits, we are willing to sell uh, this foreign this foreign money at a lower rate. So imagine that mm-hmm. you say, well, I'm going to sell a contract where if the euro goes, I don't know, let's say for one to four versus the dollar, I'm actually going to sell it for less than that, right? And then you have different levels all across. In the case of Mexico, it was in particular, if the exchange went beyond 13 pesos per dollar, this institution was willing to sell it at, you know, let's say 12. If it went beyond 14, it was willing to sell it at 13 and so on and so forth. But it was multi-million dollar contracts. And we as a central bank could not see it uh, we were not aware of of those contracts. So when everything started going down, is that when the actual exchange rate is started going up, this organization or it was a corporation that had these contracts had to face this demand. They realized, oh shoot, now we're going to have to fulfill these contracts. They had to go out and buy dollars from the market. And what was going to happen is that they basically were going to go bankrupt because they were going to face huge losses. At the same time, the dollar was going to go up highly. And so there was going to be a huge depreciation of the currency. The Entire economy was, was going to suffer because of this. Our desire, uh, Wayne, was to let them go down. For sure, it was their fault. No no one asked them to do this contracts. I mean, there was demand, of course, but you know, this was something that was highly risky. It jeopardized the entire country. So we wanted them to go down. The problem is that if we did not intervene in the market to sell those dollars at a lower rate, the whole country was going to be damaged. So when faced with that decision, it was not as simple as saying, you know, they have to go bankrupt because we were going to bankrupt the, the rest of the economy. So we have to intervene and inject a lot of money. I'll tell you, we were not in a good mood. We were not looking uh, at them with our good eyes, basically, because it was their fault. So that's the first part. The second part is I believe that there has to be some It can be regulations, but at the same time could be something that has to do with the responsibility and accountability of people. People who go into undertaking all those risks basically put somebody else's risk on the table and not theirs. They cannot go to jail. They cannot be arrested. They're not liable for what they're doing at a massive scale. And I think that's one of the things that we have to change. If you're willing to put your entire bank at risk. And all the savers at risk, and with that, you're going to have to have an intervention by the Fed, you should be able to to be punished. You should face the consequences, let's say, of taking those risks. And I think that's not on the table right now. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is that what would it look like to have a system that works for everyone? I think that, you know, I wish I had that answer, but I'll just say something. And, And I think I mentioned this previous show, which was that we have to look at the things that we measure. If we measure everything by growth, obviously it doesn't really matter. It's gonna be like uh, Gagan is saying, you know, the more consumption you create, the, the better, the better, the better, the better. If that's the focus, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. We cut the trees, we use all the rivers, we pollute all the oceans, and the next step is gonna be go to Mars and the moon and extract all the resources and keep consuming because that's what we're measuring right now. But if we measure something different, uh, you know, equality, wealth, something that is more attuned to quality of living, that, that's going to be a whole different picture. So I think that we have to start by looking at what is the we're measuring and what is the target of, of governments. What's
0: yeah, your vision sure. for humanity? Yeah. Like, what does an economy yeah. for humanity well,
1: look like, Agen? Consumption is given a very bad name. And then we want equality. What do you want equality of? You want equality of that everybody has something more than what they have currently right so you basically want them to have a house or a car or you know water hot water or whatever electricity and you know certain things these are consumptions you want people to have consumptions you're saying people don't have food to eat house to say you what you're basically saying is they cannot consume today If you want equality either you're making everybody poor or you want to make everybody rich first we have to decide that what do you want to do you want everybody to be rich or do you want everybody to be poor right i think we want to beat up certain people who are doing wrong and the answer is yes we should do whatever publicly fraud put them in jail blah 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 yes we need to do that that's law has the law being put in and being implemented sensibly? The answer is no. Should we do that? Yes. But that's not economy. That is bad behavior which is getting away because some rich people can have rich lawyers and influence and get away. That's a political problem. That's not an economic problem. There are always going to be thieves and they're going to be decoits and murderers in this world, and it has nothing to do with. It. It's just that if the murderer or a cheat sits on a big organization, he's going to cheat big and if he stands on the road and he picks your pocket he's going to do that right it's an op- opportunity of where I can cheat you more it's an individual is the people who sit where how do you make sure their punishment is different but the philosophy is I keep hearing this is we want everybody to be equal and then we don't want them to consume we want people to consume that's the whole bit of equality we want everybody to be rich I mean, philosophy, and obviously in sensible way, we want it to be sustainable. And that's the natural way of doing things, which is be sustainable. Today, we have the technology to be sustainable. I mean, our energy today is literally sustainable for eternity and at the cost, which is literally nothing it It'll cost you two pence a unit, right? Which, which is nothing. You can literally get energy for nothing and forever. We have the technology. And food, we can grow food naturally, organically, completely for the whole world today. Can we make natural housing for everybody? We can. The question is not whether there is an ability to do that. We already have. The question is, we have not started thinking of saying we want everybody at what level of consumption. That this is a bare minimum level of consumption. We expect everybody to be. Once we have that question answered and not coming from who is bad, but what is the good we want in everybody's life? Then we start asking, how do we make that good happen in this world? Right. We are looking at a problem of saying who controls what, but fundamentally you know, economy is, is been there when first two people did. And I don't know, they, they went on a deer hunting together and decided they will divide the deer into two parts. One half you take half I take. That's when the economy started. The only question in the world has been: Has it been centrally controlled by few people, whether it's socialism or communism or kind of capitalism we are seeing today, where few companies, a few big individuals control everything in economy, or it is decentralized economy, where majority of the people own something and it's not concentrated. You know, it's it's divided. That's only the two types of economy has been there ever. And whoever can be. Who controls it? And we as a team, I, I think, been talking about that. The control cannot be centralized. Whether it is communism where some, you know, bureaucratic politicians run it and they have no understanding of how to make money or some people who are very greedy and concentrating and make it a lot of money. But well, that's centralization. And then it is decentralization. Everybody to partake it in equally or have a major say in how things happen. Right. And that's where democracy comes in. And that's where we keep coming and saying we have the right to vote and we have the right to making laws and, and the game plans and the rules of the games. Right. To me, that's how you run it. And I'm for decentralization. And in pure way of decentralization is competition. Right. Today, if I you really look at and I come from a consumption company, but the, the thing is there are only four manufacturers of chocolates who basically run the world. There are seven manufacturers of cars who run the world. There are you, you name any consumer product today. Globally, there are only five or seven companies. I'm not challenging that it is too centralized today with few organizations. And that is in world organizations like, you know, five chocolate makers control everything. Seven car makers control everything. Six cell phone makers control everything right and that is the problem the problem is that we have gone from decentralized to centralized very quickly in the last 50 to 60 years and the reason it has happened is because governments have thrown tons of money and the tons of money naturally goes the easiest ways to biggest guys right if I have 100 billion you're ready to give me another hundred billion if I have 200 billion I can get 400 billion way wait, wait, so so
4: let's phone. have somebody else say something
1: I
2: have some points to make that I think may be relevant here. We're talking about economic systems, but there is a fundamental difference between economic systems and how the governments run those economic systems. You have various countries in the world that are capitalistic. They're all run differently and they all have various uh, forms of success and failure there are policy differences there are retirement age differences pension funding health services etc different ways of doing things so just because you're a capitalist country doesn't mean you're the same we all know that governments have the worst record of picking the proper industry to fund apart from that and i do like what matt said about the planet I think that's incredibly important because that kind of folds into all of this stuff that we as a society tend to be very selfish. And uh, if the answer is don't fly so much because that creates pollution and destroys the planet, but we have somewhere to go, we're going to say, well, you know, my flight's not going to make that much difference. We have to merge the dealings of the economy with the dealings of the planet. But that gets me to a further point, which is what we really want, and I think we can all agree on this, what we really want is every single person on this planet to be happy. What does happy mean? Happy means different things to different people. Look at Bhutan. I believe they score number one on the happiness index in the world. I would not like to live there, but those people are happy. So maybe their form of government is the right one for them. Maybe ours is not. But who defines what happiness means? You know, we have a, a poverty level that is—I I don't know, Eric. You can you can tell me what it is. I think it was a dollar twenty-five a day.
3: It's is it poverty, but Yeah, there's two, two but you can say one or two dollars. Okay. A day.
2: So we say that anybody that's earning less than that is not good and we have to help them, but maybe they're happy. Maybe they don't know what happy is, but who's supposed to judge that? And then how do you work that into the economy?
5: Giving me a great deal to think about it. Two readers question about a vision. I'm not going to project a whole vision for for the world economy. I don't pretend to be equipped to do that. But I do think, similar to David and Gagandeep had said, I often begin workshops or at some point in a workshop will raise the question if, I love Eric's point about how we measure and value what a, a decent economy looks like and does. And I think that one of the things that I often do in workshops is pose the question of, in an economy in which if you don't have access to money you may have a rational fear of being homeless and starving. In an economy such as that, what opportunities do human beings have to develop a sense that who we are matters? And so I think that for me, a useful way to think about how the quality of an economy and or society ought to be measured is the question of do human beings have the potential to develop things they like about themselves? Do they have the opportunity to express themselves creatively in a, in a variety of ways? Um, and so I think this question of measuring that is at this moment an arbitrary thing. But I think for me, it's a question that is a useful one for a large vision. And then I think about conditions under which people develop a sense that we might matter. And I think on the one hand, doesn't matter if we matter, if we don't have a planet, if the planet does not fit for human life, then you know we have to do something about that. And so I think one of the economic principles, if you will, that might guide such a transformation and such an economy is the use of renewable, sustainable energy sources to produce within the bounds of nature. And this can just be a guiding principle on economies of the, f- of the future, And also to facilitate within people a sense that their decisions matter, their skills and what they need to be improved on and what's not for them. That production can be organized cooperatively and controlled cooperatively by whether you call it firms, whether you call it organizations, it doesn't matter to me. But that production has to be done for use rather than profit. And I may make one caveat to not just production within the bounds of nature, but consumption within the bounds of nature. Because I think that what what Gagandeep has said is vitally important. We do have the material capacity to satisfy everyone's needs. I think about the fact that we're on this call, though. The technology that makes it possible for us to be in conversation together requires the mineral coal time which is Democratic Republic of the Congo, and wars are fought over it and, 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 and people die on a daily basis. It's assembled in South Asia by workers who work in factories or the working conditions are so poor that firms have installed suicide nets to prevent the workers from you know, killing themselves. That, to me, says this notion of production and consumption within the bounds of nature has to also be thought about globally rather than just nationally and or, you know, regionally.
0: Go ahead, Wayne.
4: Well, I'd like to react to both uh, Eric and Gandhi and what they had to say. Firstly, both of them mentioned this and kind of, I think we went over it very quickly and without looking at it. Regulation is really important. It was mentioned first of all by Eric when he said that um, there was some regulation. The government was in charge, but they allowed somebody to do something that they didn't have the funding to back it up. And that's the problem: is that if you don't have regulation, you've got a real problem. Uh, What happened during Greenspan's time? was that they didn't allow Brooksley Bourne, who was the um, charge of the uh, Commodity Future Corporation, to regulate derivatives. And that created the whole burning of the economy in 2008-09. There was nothing backing all that housing money because theoretically somebody had the money to back it up if things went wrong. Well, they didn't. And there was no regulation. And that's the same thing. The Gandhi was talking about the economy and the way it works and so on and so forth. But until you have some sort of regulation so that there's an oversight, so that those greedy people that he was talking about can be stopped from being doing the greedy things, then we're going to continue to have booms and busts. We've had this these things going on since the 17th century. And until we find a system where there is a regulator put in place to stop what's going on that is bad for the economy, this will continue. So uh, it's it's really I probably aren't going to have too much of a chance to speak (laughs) any longer. So I'm going to Take about three minutes, and and I'll I'll tell you what I think the problems are. First of all, governments haven't been allowed to tax enough. They don't have the ability to regulate because they don't have the money to do it. And that's been caused by the political system that's allowed corporations to hire lobbyists to take over the political system.
0: So Wayne, I'm yeah. fine with you continuing to talk. That's super cool. But I'd like you to kind of stay on not so much what is the problem, okay, but what is your vision for how we overcome the problem? We, right? Because we talked about the problem in our individual shows and I really like to shift okay. the gears to what is it okay. that we're creating, what can be created.
4: Okay, we have to increase taxes on people who are, earning extraordinary amounts of money. And that money is going to go to governments for regulation. That will also be available for people who are exposed to real concerns of poverty. It's horrible to live in cities where there's a lot of homeless people, and it's a shame that we don't have things to do. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I, I will back off now at this point because I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to use it a lot of this time.
0: Thank you, Wayne. So what I'm hearing, I'm just going to draw some threads here in terms of what I'm hearing. It's, it's kind of fascinating because you each approach it from different perspectives. And as much as it sounds like there are opposition, right, there's also a lot of complementarity here. So the first thing that I'm hearing is a future for all that we're clear about with thresholds for individuals, the planet, people, and profit, right? Like actually incorporating what are our standards for the whole world in terms of this kind of future for the planet, for the people, and for profit. And I'm including profit because we have a profit-based system now, so we can't exclude profit is what I hear people saying. Like, let's factor it in the equation and see... Where is it that profit, like not take profit off the table, but give profit its rightful place next to human beings in nature? Well, I would say human beings in nature are more important than profit. But since we've got a profit-based system now, let's start like, by putting them together and see what comes from there. And then that systems of measurement have to shift because right now what we measure is based on all the assumptions that we make about the economy now. Right? and all the assumptions that we make that profit is more important than people and planets out the window, we don't even calculate it, right? So the systems of measurement have to change and have to be consistent with the vision that we've created. And then the government regulations and the tax systems have to also be consistent with that. So it's kind of like a, a tier, right? So we, we like attempted a little vision here in this conversation, but then it means actually aligning all the systems with that vision that that is created.
2: Well, you can come up with it with the the perfect system, but you have to fund it. There has to be a way to fund it.
0: I'm kind of with Matt that, you know, total planet collapse is uh, (laughs) as good of a motivation as any. I'm not sure we need to fund it. I think eventually we may end up between uh, a rock and a hard place. Money but may no longer be needed as an incentive at well, some point. The,
2: the, there are priorities two, three, four, and five. I agree with you. That's priority one. But assuming we get priority one under control, then we have to look at two, three, four, and five.
0: And that's a big assumption because the Earth will survive. The question is, will we? Because the no Earth question. can recover. Like. Yes. You give the Earth, I mean, look at it, like the extent to which the Earth has recovered in a few months here and there of on and off of Corona. You give the Earth five years, the Earth will be as good as, almost as good as new. Or you give the Earth 30 years and the Earth will be definitely as good as new, but we won't be there. So the question is, are we there? Anyway, so those are my final thoughts. I'd like to offer you all a chance to um, do a round of final thoughts and if you wanna also offer your contact information, so I'll also put it in the in the show notes. And I'd like your final thoughts to be around, like, where do we have power? Because I think a lot of people tend to think of the economic system as something rigid that we can't change. And yet it's only, thank you for highlighting that earlier, like only 200 years-ish old, right? So where do we have power? And if you're thinking about our listeners who are asking themselves, well, I can't do anything. What would you say to them in terms of where they have power to contribute to such a vision or contribute to such a shift? To where we have power. I like that I said they. That's interesting. I fell back in my own default. Go ahead.
4: Well, it's really important that people understand how the financial system works. So the first thing to do is to get a little educated about how it works. And the second thing you have to do is you have to get political. You really have to get political to to determine what it is that you want and tell the, your representatives what you want and try to get other people to do it as well because you got lots of lobbyists doing things that may not be in your favor. So those are the things that I think are really important. Get educated and get political because There must be changes made because we can't keep going the way we're going. I mean, it's uh, it's quite clear.
3: I would like to just follow. up. I think that's, I love what you said, Uh, Wayne. I think I also like, in in addition to that, is that there's a tendency to think that the government is going to solve everything or somebody else is going to solve everything. And it just reminds me some years ago, I was a paramedic, as I mentioned. And I remember just being in an ambulance waiting for the traffic to open up. It was so much traffic that we just couldn't move. And I just mentioned to my colleagues at the the time, and they said, the government should do something about it, right? But that's the right way to think about that because that's empowering towards, towards us. And now that I've been in government, is that do I really have to solve the problem of traffic, the problem of water, the problem of financial regulation, the problem of derivatives? I mean, you know, among ourselves, it's hard to agree on what time we're going to go for coffee or something like that. Yeah. On top of that, to agree like an, an entire government on how we're going to solve every single problem in the society. But if the society is thinking about it, you can come up with a lot of solutions. For example, in this case, you know, I thought, well, you know, what if I created a company uh, with motorcycles that can go between the traffic and they have like basic things like, uh, you know, like uh, uh chest monitor, like a defibrillator, like the basic things while the ambulance arrives. It would save a lot of lives. So that's a solution. It doesn't solve necessarily the problem of traffic, but at least solves the problem that one of the problems of traffic is recreating. If everyone was thinking, how could I solve the problem? That would make a lot of huge difference. So um, in addition to get it political is to think, you know, is there a way I can solve the problem in a sustainable manner? And sustainable may mean uh, also like financially sustainable because we talk about profits and we talk about this, but but we kind of like mention profits as as if it was a bad thing. But when you have your own company and you have your own employees, you know that if you don't make the money, you're going to have to fire them. And so it is also like their ways of living. And uh, a few years ago, I ran these workshops um, around the world with mayors. And we did an experiment. The first half an hour... I put them through a simulation of a company and everyone said, ah, this guy's very easy to run a company. You just have to be a little bit greedy and and that's it. Right. So I was like, all right, so let's do it. It's a computer simulation of a, of computer simulation of a company. Within 21 minutes, all of them, every single time 400 executives bankrupt the company in 21 minutes, because this is not, sorry. I
0: said, holy
3: Yay. moly. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, it's not just like, oh, I want to be greedy. Let me try uh, to be as greedy as possible. It is an art. And so, you know, people saw like, you know, I have to fire people now because I don't have money. So that is also something worth undertaking. So going back just to the root, right? If we all take certain responsibility and we shift the, the the mind to like, how can somebody else solve the problem is how could I do something to solve one particular problem, two particular problems, because there's thousands of problems, not just one, just one problem, two problems. Imagine if the six of us solve one big problem would be fantastic, just one.
2: While I certainly firmly agree that financial literacy is, is a necessary thing in this country, I will also tell you that the average person, even if they get financial literacy, will not understand finance. They will not understand economics. They will not understand how the government works. However, the one thing that they will understand is what they want. And we live in a representative democracy, which means we vote for people who represent our interests in government. And we hope that those people have our best interests at heart. That's why we vote for them. And that those people take care of these problems. Now, what that involves is we have to know enough of what we want and what they know or what they can do to be able to vote for the right person. People don't take the time to educate themselves about candidates. That is a huge problem. I will also tell you because I have dealt with government that when you elect a representative in Congress that person cannot possibly know every single thing about every single topic, they can't. I've done it, I've lobbied, I know how it works. They have a staff person that comes in and listens to you and then they do research and whatever. And we can't expect them to, but we have to lobby for what we want as well as get the right people in to do what we want. And when I say lobby, that's a dirty word. I don't like lobbyists because they're paid by people and they don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. The average person can lobby by calling their representative, calling their Senator and voicing their opinion. But the key is we know what we want for ourselves. And we have to get that to the people who can make the decisions that will get those things to work.
5: I want to build, just kind of synthesize what, what other folks have said. Like, you know, like Wayne, I think folks, if folks can, can, can figure out the financial system, please do. Like David has said, and, and Wayne also said, you know, we have to. We have to take to the streets. We have to be putting demands On a global scale, we have to take to the streets and make demands for the regulations that Wayne has stressed throughout this conversation. Because without that, we won't survive. At the same time, similar to what Eric was saying, we have to start growing our own food. If we live in a place where there is a refusal to do anything but rely on fossil fuels, you know, we can begin to organize. We can create microgrids, like they're doing around the world. We can create solar microgrids that create that that allow us to pool our resources using solar energy, and therefore remove ourselves from the grid of a fossil fuel-driven utility industry. You know, we can do things like grow food. We can organize it into cooperative distribution and production networks. You know, we can create cooperative grocery stores. We can grow our own food. We can build a set of institutions and practices that can slowly either supplement or completely remove us from dependency on institutions organized by a system that is seemingly hell bent on human extinction. And we have to do both of those things at the same time. And we can. Can I go and
1: close us out? (laughs) I I think I am being one of the most uh, off everybody's track uh, in this conversation, maybe. I think my hope comes from a very different place. You know, what Greenpeace used to say in 1970s about environment, I think everybody on this call has been more radical about environment today than in 1970 Greenpeace was. Right? And which tells a lot about this world. In 50 years we have transformed the entire planet to first understand that it can kill you. Today, people vote for environment, right? What we have also done is to just talk about it. Not everybody understands the environment. I've heard many things about fossil fuel, but, you know, all our steel is made out of fossil fuel. You don't burn coal, you don't make steel. You don't, all our clothes have fossil fuel in it, right? So we still don't understand completely about the fossil fuel and how we consume it today. But we are all understood that we need the environment to be right, right? So you don't need to understand the subject, but you need to start talking that what is right for you. And what has happened over the last 50 years is all organizations, irrespective of whether you're a small or a big organization, is now talking about sustainability, right? Over the last 50 years, women empowerment and conversations have happened and every organization versus SALT today says we need more women participation right? The conversation is very simple. If you believe it's important, right? Just talk about it. You don't have to go and do too many things. If everybody starts talking about it, then, you know, the politicians, when they come to us, what they, they check what you are talking about. And they talk about what you talk about. They go back and do things about what you want. It will not happen overnight, but it'll happen. If you just talk about it, In economy, we talk about how much money I make, what's happening to my mortgage, what is happening to things. We, as a community, don't talk about economy as total economy. We just need to talk about that. We talk about it 50 years. If we all were there next 50 years, hopefully we are all there. And we came back on this call. I promise you, whatever we have talked today, 50 years from now, people will be 50 times more radical than what we are talking today. And that's possible. All everybody has to do is get up in the morning, talk to one person about economy and talk that that is the most important thing with me. It has to be sustainable for everybody. Just do that. I promise you, we will change the world.
0: So uh, my last thoughts is that there are a lot of ways that the economy enters into the way we operate in the everyday world, the way we do business. Right, like one of the things that I wreck my head over is how to have a collaboration with a colleague and have shared accountability instead of one person having to hold the contract and everyone else needing to be a subcontract, which puts them in a hierarchical position. That's an economic decision that we can't be co-accountable. That one person to be able, the other person has to be a sport ways that we can think creatively of the economy and push back on these structures that haven't created the space for us to create innovation yet. And the more of us push back on those structures, the more that innovation will start to take place. The more people look for a new structure and a new option, the more we'll, we'll bring it forth. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.